Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Catherine Lomas joins the show again. On May 6, 2021, Dr. Lomas joined the show and we covered the First Punic War, a war fought between Rome and Carthage. And what occurred next uh, with Dr. Lomas joining the show is we uh, tackled this topic from an interesting publishing perspective. What we did was uh, produced two episodes following that first one on June 20th and July 5th. And so in the June 20th, 2021 episode, we produced an episode that covered what was occurring with Carthage after the first Punic War. So from their perspective. And then on July 5th, 2021, we produced an episode that really acted uh, diametrically opposite. And we covered what was going on in Rome after the First Punic War. So the interregnum period between the First and Second Punic Wars. And so Dr. Lomas joins the show again today. And we're going to cover the Second Punic War, which occurred in the 3rd century BCE. Dr. Lomas is Honorary Research Fellow in the Department of Classics and Ancient History at Durham University, based in the UK. She has written many publications over her career, including authoring a couple books as examples. She's author of the book, The Rise of Rome, From the Iron Age to the Punic Wars, 1000 BC to 264 BC, which was published by Harvard University Press in the US and Profile Books in the UK. And she's author of the book, Rome in the Western Greeks, 350 BC to AD 200, Conquest and Acculturation in Southern Italy, which was published by Routledge. And Dr. Lomas joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back on the show, Catherine. Hi, it's good to be back. So I thought what would be a good spot to start, Catherine. So the first episode that we did on the First Punic War, so the war between principally Rome and, and Carthage in the third century BCE, 264 to 241. Um, at the end, there was a treaty that the two states agreed to. Can, can, can we start this episode? Can you go over what the main terms of that treaty were? Hey, uh, well, in 241, at the end of the war, uh, Rome drove quite a hard bargain. It was quite a harsh treaty. Um, and the main clauses were that it uh, required Carthage to vacate its uh, territories in Sicily. Um, Carthage had up to then controlled the western Sicily. Um, and then shortly after the end of the war in 237, uh, he did the same uh, with requiring Carthage to vacate its control of Sicily, uh, so, sorry, Corsica and Sardinia. Um, so effectively it pushed Carthage out of most of its territories on the Mediterranean islands. Um, and it also imposed quite a quite a quite a hefty war indemnity, so it so it was quite a strong financial penalty as well. Um, and Carthage's response to this uh, was to uh, change tack completely and to try and build up um, a territorial empire in Spain instead. Um, their leading general at the end of the war, Hamilcar Barca, uh, got himself appointed governor of Spain and took an uh, Carthaginian army off to Spain. Um, and where we're, where we're effectively at in the run-up to the Second Punic War is that Carthage has been very successful about this. 
and it's built up quite a quite a substantial holding of territory in in in, in Spain, which is uh, starting to cause some some concern to Rome. Um, and Rome, meanwhile, has been building up, as we talked in previous podcasts, uh, um, sort of interest in um, extending its power north of the Rio Po and into northern Italy. Uh, so that's basically the background. That's that's where we are in the effectively the 220s BC with Carthage expanding, you know, north, northwards into Spain uh, and Rome expanding northwards into northern Italy. What's known about why the Second War began and when did it begin? Uh, well, it broke out in, in uh, 218. Um, and the cause of the problem is, is very specific. Um, in 226 or possibly 225, uh, Rome and Carthage negotiated a new treaty called the Ebro Treaty, which establishes the, the Ebro River as, as the boundary of Car Carthaginian holdings in, in Spain. Um, and the background to this is that Rome is starting to get worried that Carthagin, Carthaginian power is, is, is rebounding. Um, and also, it doesn't want the Carthaginians to be able to join up with the Gauls of southern France and northern Italy because they, they, Rome sees them as a problem. It's, it's quite scared of what the Gauls might get up to. Um, uh, so it's really trying to limit uh, the spread of Carthaginian power northwards in Spain. Um, and the specific uh, thing that incident that causes the outbreak of the war is that in 219, uh, Hannibal, uh, who has been building up his uh, the size of his army for some time, uh, lays siege to a place called Saguntum, which is on the coast of Spain, uh, but it's south of the River Ebro, so it's it, it's it's actually just north of Valencia, um, and. The way Rome gets dragged into this is that uh, Saguntum appeals to Rome for help, and uh, Rome says that it will extend its protection to Saguntum. Um, it declares it to be what's called an amicus populi Romani, a friend of the Roman people, which puts it under Roman protection. Uh, but it doesn't negotiate a treaty with it or send any troops, and Hannibal simply ignores this and goes ahead and sacks the city. Uh, but at that point, Rome then lodges a diplomatic protest to Carthage, saying, effectively, you know, your general has sacked one of our, the city that's under our protection, hand him over to us because this isn't on. Uh, and Carthage says no, so that, that's when Rome declares war. Um, Polybius is one of our main sources for the war, um, and he was a Greek historian. Um, he was writing in the middle of the first, second century BC, so it's very, very slightly later than the, the date of, of writing, but not, not that much later. Uh, and although he was Greek, he spent most of his life in Rome, so he's very much under the patronage of the Scipio family. And Scipio was one of the leading Roman generals of the, the, the Second Punic War. Uh, so he's got a very, very pro-Roman slant uh, to all this. And um, he's very keen to build up the idea that it was Hannibal that, you know, caused the war because he was very hostile to Rome. And then, what are the... Um... So the Saguntum. So, so you've you've looked at the evidence, Catherine. Do you do you believe that the the besieging of Saguntum violated the treaty between the two states? Uh, besieging Saguntum, uh, the um, Hannibalic siege of Saguntum didn't, because Saguntum was south of the River Ebro, and therefore Hannibal was well within his rights to besiege it. What violated the treaty was that Rome uh, had tried to intervene on behalf of uh, a city which was in 
was was south of the river and therefore it, in, in Carthage's area of interest. Uh, so I think it was Rome that actually violated the treaty in many ways uh, by accepting a, a, a protection of, of a city which, which was really part of the, the Carthaginian area. Okay, so then what's what's known about the um, the inception point, the 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 point in which the war war starts? And for the sake of the conversation, we talked about this because there's a lot, obviously, that could be covered over a 17 year or so uh, span. Can you, um, uh, we talked about some stages. Can you also go over in your response what the main stages of the war that you want to cover today? Okay, um, well, I think it can probably be split roughly into, into four stages. Um, there's an initial stage, which is um, 218 to 216, which is really Hannibal moving into Italy and really been quite successful. Um, and then there's a phase between 216 and 212 where Rome is in quite a bad way but starting to um, come back. Um, and then a rather lengthy and messy stage between 212 and 203 where Hannibal's control of Italy um, starts to unravel uh, and eventually gets pushed back uh, to uh, North Africa. And then at the end there's the final two years of the war which is really uh, Rome invading Africa and, and, and um, defeating Carthage. Uh, so it's roughly four main stages. And the first stage uh, in uh, 218 really starts with the uh, Rome's initial response to the war and what Hannibal does next. Uh, because Rome's initial strategy doesn't seem to be to fight in Italy, it seems to be to fight in Spain and North Africa uh, because uh, one of the consuls, Scipio, is sent off to Spain with an army and, and the other one is sent to Africa. Um, but by the time Scipio reaches the River Rhone at the end of uh, the summer of 218, he actually realises that Hannibal's pulled a march on him. Uh, because Hannibal's first gambit isn't to stay in Spain, it's to march straight into Italy. Uh, and at that stage, uh, Hannibal had just crossed the river slightly upstream of Scipio and was on his way uh, towards the Alps uh, for the, the famous march across the Alps. Um, so Scipio splits his army, sends half of it off to Spain with his brother and then goes in ch chasing after Hannibal himself, but he doesn't catch up with him. Um, and at that point, Rome's uh, main aim seems to really to be to push Carthage out of Spain because the uh, army under the two Scipio brothers is, is, is basically set reunited in Spain, uh, but the army in North Africa is then pulled out to defend Italy. Uh, so Rome, Rome really does seem to have underestimated the threat to Italy at this stage, uh, because by that stage Hannibal, of course, is well across well on his way across the Alps um, with a fairly substantial army. Um, the sources say 50, 59,000 troops, although it, it was whittled down to uh, around about 26,000 by the time he actually got into Italy. Um, but he was very effective um, in this early part of the war because he scored three really quick victories against Rome at the battle also for the Ticino, uh, Trebia and Trasimene in 217 to 218. Uh, so really, uh, this is the point where Hannibal is really using one of his characteristic tactics of sort of surprise lightning attacks, sort of marching across the Alps and attacking um, the Romans. Um, and the Battle of Trasimene was really quite a heavy defeat because what happened there was that Hannibal lured the, the Romans into an arrow strip of land between Lake Trasimene and the mountains and, and managed to, to, to kill off quite a lot of them. Um, and as a result of this, uh, Rome then changed his tactics. Um, they appointed 
uh, Fabius Maximus as their general, whose famous tactic was not to do battle, but simply to take this kind of a load of ground, harassing him and um, raiding against his troops, but not actually have a pitched battle. Um, the problem is that his, his enemies at Rome didn't really like that. They really wanted a much more proactive strategy. Uh, and as a result, he was replaced. And that led to uh, one of Rome's most famous defeats. Um, because in the aftermath of the Trasimene, uh, um, Hannibal had just marched straight down the Apennines uh, through Umbria uh, and into Campania, which is south of Rome. Um, and in 216, the Roman general who had replaced Fabius uh, was cornered at a place called Cannae, which is not far from Capua, the main city of Campania, uh, and lures Rome into a trap, uh, absolutely wipes out its its army, um, and that, that really is Rome's lowest point because there's been a massive loss of manpower of life, um, and it really does undermine Roman's control of Italy, which is the basis of its power. Um, so that first phase of the war is really sort of Hannibal's high point, in its, its sort of marching across the Alps, scoring these Three these four spectacular victories, and, and really putting Rome, you know, in, in very dire straits indeed. So we're at two sixteen at this at this point in the chronology, right, Catherine? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to cover anything else that you think is pertinent in that first stage, and then work work uh, work into the second stage of the war? Yeah, okay. Um, well, basically, I think that, the, you know, to, to the first phase of the war perhaps illustrates some of the strengths of Hannibal, you know, the fact that he, he's good at these very sort of fast surprise attacks. Um, Rome clearly has very much underestimated him. Uh, and he, he, he also, it also flags up his one of the core bits of his strategy, which is actually quite important for the rest of the war, which is trying to undermine relationship between the relationship between Rome and the other the other Italian states who are all allied to Rome because he sees that as, as really and quite rightly sees that as the core of Roman power. Um, so one of the things he does in this period is, is actually try and cultivate good relations with, with Italians. He's, he's very nice to Italian captives, for instance, and, and beastly to the Roman ones. Um, so really that, that sort of flags up one of his, his core strategies. Um, and that, that actually builds up um, a little more in the, the next phase between 216 and 212, uh, because with Rome on the back foot, um, one of the things which is slightly surprising is you'd expect Hannibal to actually march on Rome at this point, and he doesn't. Uh, instead, he bases himself on Campania and dedicates himself to try and, trying to get all, all the um, Italian states which are allied to Rome to, to defect. Um, and at this point, he has quite a lot of success because obviously he's there with his army and he's a an imminent threat. Uh, the Romans, Romans can't really push back because they've lost 68 1,000 troops. Um, and also quite a lot of political factions within some Italian cities actually see this as a way of getting away from Roman power and see, seeing this as a, as a way to uh, promoting the interests of their own cities. Uh, so what happens in the immediate aftermath of the battle is that Hannibal marches to Capua, which is uh, one of the key cities of, of, of ancient Italy. Uh, it talks to one of the leaders of the Capuans, uh, who is amenable to Hannibal, and get, gets him to seize power and then take the city um, out of the Roman alliance and, and into alliance with Carthage. Um, so Hannibal basically bases himself in Capua um, and spends all this time trying to um, subvert the, the alliance in, in the Roman alliance in southern Italy. 
Uh, and that leaves Rome fighting on a lot of different fronts. So it's very, it's very difficult situation. The other thing Hannibal does in this stage is, at this stage, is that he makes an alliance with Philip V, the King of Macedon, um, which uh, is interesting because one of the things it shows is that what he was after was not destroying Rome, but sort of taking away all Rome's allies and creating, leaving Rome as a sort of uh, very minor protectorate of Carthage. Um, but uh, Rome actually bounces back from this really, really surprisingly fast. Um, it has an immense recruitment drive for troops, um, including allowing people like slaves and criminals who wouldn't normally be allowed to join the legions to, to do so. And we know that by uh, 215, it has 12 legions back in the field, and then that goes up to 18, and then 22 by 213. Uh, so um, Rome is actually sort of rebuilding its, its, its power at this stage. Hannibal is trying to have this big diplomatic initiative to dismantle Roman control of southern and central Italy. Um, and also Rome goes back to the uh, Fabius uh, Maximus strategy of harassing Hannibal rather than having these big set-piece battles. Um, so Hannibal does have this period where he has a lot of success and Rome is really sort of rocking because its, its alliance is being undermined. Uh, but at the same time, Hannibal doesn't really build on it. Um, and by the time you get to the end of this phase in 212, uh, you can see that uh, Rome is starting to um, you know, recover from Cannae and start, starting to re rebuild its, it, um, it, its, its power. It's started, starting to push back against some of these conquests. Uh, by, um, in, uh, by Hannibal in, in the south of Italy. Do you think that um, he didn't move towards Rome in this period of time because even if successful uh, attacking the city of Rome, there's still allies that needs to be considered, like Rome's allies in, in, in the war? Do you think that played a, played a role at all in, his, uh, in Hannibal's thinking? Um, I don't know. Um... I mean, he certainly saw the alliance as important and he saw them as the key to Roman power because, of course, the nature of Roman alliance was that you know, Rome and the ally agreed to come to each other's assistance if, if, if the other was attacked. Um, so the ally got Roman protection, but also it meant that the, um, the ally, had, if Rome said, you know, our interests are threatened, you know, we want our allies to send troops to help us, and they had to do so. And that, that gave Rome a, 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 an immense pool of military manpower it could call on. And what, what Hannibal, I think, was trying to do was unpick that, so that he was trying to sort of basically take all the allies away from Rome as a way of undermining Roman power, the Roman power base. Um, the other thing which I think perhaps wrong-footed Hannibal was that it was the norm in the Hellenistic world uh, that, you know, you would fight a war, um, you know, one party would suffer setbacks and then you would offer negotiation and try and get a negotiated peace. And we know that Hannibal tried to negotiate several times and the Roman Senate wasn't having any of it, it just said no, because the Roman norm seems to be that once you go to war, you keep going until, until you win. You know, it's, it's a, a very, very different mindset. Um, so one of the things that I think was going on here was that Hannibal was basically trying to weaken Rome um, both diplomatically and militarily, to the point where it would it, he would have expected Rome to negotiate a peace, and it just didn't happen like that. Is is there any consensus? Has this dialogue occurred in the uh, scholarly community over the years in terms of um, for, forecasting? It's a bit of a what if, but I, but yeah. it's a curious thought. If he would have 
besieged Rome if him and his army would have been successful in that uh, besiege. When you when you measure at the given period of time and uh, you know approximate troops and their level of skill and equipment versus the versus Rome. Has that dialogue occur, occurred before in the scholarly community, and um, what and 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 what do you what yeah what what do you think about about that? Would would he have been uh, successful in that siege? Um, that's a that's a that's a difficult one to call. I mean, it has been talked about, uh, and in fact, it's not just the modern scholarly community that have, that have scratched their heads about why Hannibal didn't march on Rome because uh, some of the ancient sources have uh, little uh, set piece debates, which are obviously, you know, born out of authorial imagination, uh, in w- which set up Hannibal debating this with uh, his commanders. And um, I think Livy, um, the other main narrative writing in the first century BC, has a set piece where one of, one of Hannibal's commanders turns around to him and says, kind of effectively, you know what, Hannibal, you're a great battlefield commander, but you're not really much of a strategist, because he, he thinks that Hannibal should have marched against Rome. Um, so clearly the debate has been, has been a live one since the ancient world. Um, I mean, it's a difficult one to call because Hannibal was definitely on the up at that stage and Rome had suffered a really heavy defeat, a really heavy defeat. So I think it probably, in terms of, in terms of size of army and where, where they were at militarily, Hannibal probably would have had the edge. Um, but one thing which seems to be clear is that most of the Italians who defected from Rome uh, are looking for independence, not to be part of a Carthaginian alliance. So they, they don't simply replace like with like. Uh, so Hannibal's not getting an awful lot of military support from them. Uh, so it's not that Rome's support is leeching away and joining Hannibal in, in the sense of military support. It's, it's not really. Um, the other thing is, of course, Hannibal is quite a long way from Rome. Over, sorry, from, that's probably going to slip, from home. Uh, and therefore, it's much more difficult for him to get reinforcements because it's a, a long way to ship them in from Carthage. So if he gets um, a heavy defeat, then it's it's much more difficult to kind of resupply with new troops. Um, the other thing which I think comes into play here is is the Roman mindset, because if you put the Romans against the back with the backs against the wall, they really do seem to have the mindset of you know kind of death or glory. <laughs> Um, so I think I think if Hannibal had tried to besiege Rome, it would have been a a very a very hard situation for for both sides. Um, I think I think it's fifty fifty which way it would have gone. But um, one thing that the Romans are really keen on is just never give up. Um, you know, it's we get we get over and over again, not just in this war but other other wars as well. Situations where they're they're really on the back foot, um, but they, they 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 just refuse to negotiate peace. They just you know, either they win or, or they or they lose completely. You know, it's, um, you know there's no middle ground for, for you know in the in the Roman mindset. Um, so I think it's a difficult one. I think Hannibal would have, even though he ha- would have had numerical superiority, perhaps at that stage, might have had his work cut out. Um, and of course, see, see, siege warfare is a different beast to battlefield warfare. So um, you know, he's uh, he, he was a great battlefield commander, undoubtedly, but. Um, whether he'd have been any good at siege warfare is perhaps a, a different question. Before we move uh, forward in the chronology, I want to cover this item because it's very proverbial when it comes to this this war is the the elephants and his crossing of the mountains. So I want to make sure this right, yeah. this question gets gets in. So uh, so did did Hannibal and his 
army bring elephants over the over the Alps? And is there any is there any estimation as to uh, how many and 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 why he did that? Um, well, he started out with about twenty of them, uh, but not many survived. Um, the elephants more or less sort of died off uh, in the Alps. Um, I mean, Hannibal and the elephants are a sort of iconic image because of the difficulty of getting them over the mountains. Um, and one of the weird things is that although they're iconic, um, it seems to be mainly symbolic uh, because we don't actually know much about what he did with the elephants once he got... I mean, we know he had elephants because when we get accounts of in people like in, in the Livy's account, he periodically talks about Hannibal getting new troops shipped in from Carthage and it's always given us so many infantry, so many cavalry and so many elephants. So he clearly still had elephants. Um, but the point about, ele about elephants is that firstly they're standard in Hellenistic armies by this stage. So it's again, it's Hannibal very much on as a commander in the Hellenistic Greek mold. Uh, but also, um, you know, in terms of what you do with an elephant on the battlefield, um, they're really only effective in very open, very level ground. I mean, you can't find you can't you can't fight battle battles up and up the slope with an elephant that easily. Um, and one of the things that I, I, I did at one stage was actually go looking for, you know, is there any evidence of what Hannibal did with his elephants? And the answer is no, there isn't. Um, there's an account of what, a, what an earlier commander, Pyrrhus, did with his elephants in uh, the early third century, um, because he, he brought an elephant corps with him to Italy. Um, and what he seems to have done was use them as reinforcement for his light troops, um, for things like javelin throwers and slingers and archers, uh, by creating a spaced out line of elephants and putting his light troops in between. So you've got somebody to something to protect the light troops. Um, uh, but that comes from quite a late source. It comes from second century AD, from the biography of Plutarch. And I couldn't find much much evidence of what Hannibal was doing with his elephants. Uh, so I think although they're very iconic, and you, you get you get sort of images of them in the really nice Etruscan pot with a picture of an elephant um, from the Hannibalic era uh, on it. Um, so clearly they're iconic and they're, they are very associated with Hannibal, but they're not, uh, I, don't, I don't think militarily they were really not significant at the least it probably sent a riveting message to any armies in uh, the italian peninsula that saw an army coming towards them with elephants yeah well again going back to pyrrhus uh, one of the one of the anecdotes about him is that he used them as a sort of diplomatic shock tactic there was a, a, a an anecdote about him entertaining a roman ambassador and hiding an elephant behind the screen and getting it to sort of trumpet at a key moment in the negotiations uh, and the Romans being made of stern stuff, the embassy, the, the Roman envoy always turn around and say, well, you know, we're, we're not afraid of your beasts, so we're not going to be afraid of your army, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was a sense that, they, you know, not just Hannibal, but also other other, other command, commanders you, of this sort of era you did use elephants as, uh, you know, an eye-catching catching shock tactic. But, you know, you can't, you, can't really fight, you can't really fight on rugged ground with an elephant. You know, you can only really do it on... on you know, a fairly level pitched battle. And of course, by this stage, Rome was avoiding pitched battle for obvious reasons. Okay, so where are we in the chronology then, Catherine? And do you want to go and do you want to take it from there? Okay, well, we're in 212. And by this stage, Hannibal has um, unpicked quite a lot of the Roman alliance in uh, southern Italy, uh, the Hannibal, the, the, most of the, the Samnites have, have jumped ship. Um, he's got a lot of allies amongst the Greek communities around the coast, uh, although not 
the key city of Naples, the key city of Naples in Campania, which is significant because that would have given them a harbour and they wrote, Naples stayed loyal. Um, uh, Etruria and Umbria are still more or less hanging in there as Roman allies, um, but the allies who do join Hannibal tend to sort of just sort of join Hannibal to get away from Rome rather than to be actively supporting him. Um, so this is the point at which the war sort of fragments and gets very messy and it's very difficult to, to give us a, a sort of overview uh, because what you get between 212 and um, around about 208 is a period where Hannibal's strategy of, the, of undermining, under, undermining the Roman alliance rather, rather unravels. Um, the whole thing fragments into a lot of little sort of mini campaigns all over southern uh, and Apennine Italy, um, and Rome starts to gradually claw back some of its losses. Um, and um, obviously, as, as Rome recaptures allies which have revolted, they uh, punish them fairly severely. Uh, it also becomes clear that Hannibal doesn't really have the resources to protect its new allies. Uh, and of course, Rome has a much better supply chain, so Hannibal is, is sort of under, under a bit of pressure at this stage. Um, and that's followed by a, a sort of Roman wobble in 208 to 7 BC, when Hannibal does get some reinforcements sent from Spain. Um, and also, Rome's allies start to, for the first time ever, to refuse to supply troops to Rome. Uh, and that involves not just Italian people who've allied by treaty, it involves uh, Roman colonies, which you know, is obviously much more core to the, the alliance. And also at that point, that for the first time, there's a signs of unrest in Etruria, which has previously been quite loyal. Um, so Rome has this period where it's sort of gradually coming back from the defeat at Cannae um, and recapturing some of the allies that have gone over to Hannibal. Uh, but then it has this year when, it, when everything really, really gets quite, quite wobbly. Um, and in fact, that it, it survives that reasonably well because um, uh, Hasdrubal, the um, commander from Spain who's bringing reinforcements to Hannibal is intercepted and defeated. Um, Hannibal then again has supply problems, he can't, he, can't, he can't supply his army, he can't get new troops. Um, and at that point he tries to negotiate peace with Rome uh, and uh, this is where Rome really digs in and says no. Um, uh, 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 and then they, they fight on. Um, and then the trajectory of 205 to 203 is really um, Rome recapturing all its losses. Uh, Hannibal's network of control of the Italian allies just unravels. Um, and eventually he retreats further and further back into Calabria, into the toe of Italy, um, where he does have some residual support. Um, and eventually he's recalled Carthage in 203. Um, and the reason he's recalled is that Rome by that stage has invaded North Africa. Um, and he's needed to, to, to try and protect Carthage itself. Um, so 203 is really the end of the war in Italy um, and the point at which um, uh, Hannibal's sort of attempt to you know, really take on Rome in its own backyard yeah, has, has really significantly failed. Um, and then the final two years of the war are really fought in North Africa. Okay. Do you want to go there then to the final stage of the war? Yeah, okay. Well, the final showdown uh, was really where Scipio really sort of makes his name. Um, but having said that, perhaps I want to backtrack on that. He, he actually made his name uh, in Spain uh, because one of the things that 
Um, in fact, although we think of the, the Punic Wars as basically being fought mainly in Italy because Hannibal's spectacular march across the Alps, it, it in effect becomes a sort of world war because there are campaigns in Sicily, there are campaigns in Spain. Um, it sort of spills, it's closely linked with the outbreak of the First Macedonian War, so there's campaign, Romans campaigning in Illyria and Macedonia as well. Uh, so it, it does have many ramifications. Um, um, but Spain is quite a, quite, a, quite an important one because Scipio has a, a an absolutely stellar current, current military uh, campaign in Spain where he, he really conquers all, all of the Carthaginian holdings uh, and Spain goes on to become a ruling province. Um, so he's got really high standing. Um, by the time he comes back to Rome in uh, 204, uh, because he's got this absolutely stellar military reputation, he's able to persuade the Senate to let him invade North Africa. Um, and once he gets over there, he, what he does is effectively play, play Hannibal at his own game, uh, because he builds a series of alliances with the Libyans and Numidians, uh, and successfully isolates Carthage from uh, people that, he's, that, 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 that have previously been, been uh, Carthaginian allies. Um, and again, we get a sort of break for diplomatic um, goings on, uh, because Carthage sends envoys to Rome, tries to make peace, um, but Scipio rejects this. Um, not, he, he's highly ambitious, and, and you know the idea of being, of being the, the conqueror of Carthage obviously quite appeals, uh, because he rejects the, these overtures out of hand. Um, and uh, he fights a battle at the place called Zama in 202, which is the absolute decisive Roman victory, which Carthage has com comprehensively defeated. Um, so uh, basically, kind of recalling Hannibal to, to help, help, out, help defend Carthage really doesn't work. Um, uh, and instead, it's Scipio who wins the, the decisive showdown. Um, and in 201, Carthage is forced to accept unconditional surrender. So it really is a complete end to um, Carthage's immediate hopes of um, being the dominant power in the Western Mediterranean. Um, and as with uh, the First Punic War, it gets really harsh terms from Rome. Uh, it's deprived of its fleet, uh, which is really quite heavy duty because Carthage is a major naval power. Uh, it loses part of its own territory, um, and it also loses the right to make war without Roman permission, so very much its, its legal autonomy is being infringed on. Uh, and it's also forced to send hostages to Rome and again to pay war reparations, which, um, you know, set, set at a, a fairly higher level. Um, so that, that's basically where the war ends with um, this final two-year campaign in Africa, which effectively becomes a showdown between Scipio and, um, uh, and Hannibal. Um, and then this, uh, the defeat of Carthage and, and this really, really nasty treaty. What, uh, what side was the kingdom of Macedon on? Did they take a side? You'd mentioned them er earlier that Hannibal had uh, gone to them and seek their support. Uh, what's known about the, the position that the kingdom of Macedon took during this war? Um, well, it, 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 was, it was very against Rome. Um, the first, what's known as the First Macedonian War uh, is usually sort of um, conflated with the events of 214 to 205. Um, and that, that's really a sort of separate issue. But what seems to have been going on there is that uh, Philip V, the King of Macedon, 
uh, was trying to extend his power uh, and he was building up a, na a, a navy. Uh, he tried to push his power into Illyria, um, which is kind of where the link with the Illyrians comes in. Um, and uh, he, uh, it, it, it spills over in a very complicated uh, set of um, diplomatic relations uh, into a war between um, Philip V and Hannibal on, on, on one side, uh, with some support from some Illyrians, um, uh, Demetrius of Pharos, the leading, leading Illyrian that I think I mentioned in, in a previous podcast, was, was, it was implicated in all this. Uh, and the Romans and some of the Greeks on, on the other. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a, it's a bit tangential to, you know, the, the main events of the Hannibalic War, which are really centered in Italy and Sicily. Uh, but um, basically, Philip V is using this as a sort of opportunistic way to try and extend his own power by pushing back against Illyria, which is by this stage, um, um, you know, got, got good relations with Rome um, and to expand his power. Uh, and to that end, he and Hannibal make, make an alliance. Um, so it, one of the things it really shows is the extent to which the, the entire Mediterranean world is really closely interconnected. Um, so it, it's, um, you know, events in Italy have a knock-on effect on Sicily where, you know, there's a Rome, Rome fights a, a campaign against Syracuse to, uh, which is, revolted against it to, to, to kind of conquer the whole of Sicily. And it, it also gets drawn into this other war in, you know, which is effectively uh, about a Macedonian power grab uh, in Macedonia and Illyria. Yeah, and we've, we've chatted about that before, how interconnected the, the basin is with, with these various topics. And, uh, and, and to give listeners an example of that on a related episode, so... Um, Catherine, you recommended Dr. Daniel Gino for, 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 to, uh, as a guest on, on the show. And Dr. Daniel Gino appeared on the show and we covered the Illyrians. So if anybody wants to learn more about the Illyrians, that, that episode is, uh, is findable online as, as well. The final battle, is, is it known um, in terms of why Rome was successful in that battle? Is there is there is there anything about the from a from a quantifiable perspective leading up to that that final battle? Is there is it known if 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 one of the armies had more more soldiers, equipment, um, a particular strategy was deployed? Is there anything kind of pivotal that's in the records that's uh, that 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 adds clarity to that? Um, it, it's difficult to pin down, but one of the reasons for that is that ancient accounts of battles, um, and, you know, particularly when you get to things like numbers of troops, are, are, are very difficult to interpret because some, some of the numbers are so implausible. It's, it's kind of difficult to, to to trust them, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of lot of sort of debate about how much you can pin on things like you know numbers of troops, numbers of casualties uh, in terms of ancient battles. Um, I mean, one of the things that I think was perhaps um, the key here is that, you know, because Rome had started to claw back its uh, control of Italy and, and therefore its access to this big pool of manpower from Italian sources, is that 
it had actually made good some of its losses in terms of, of, of manpower, uh, whereas Carthage was very much ground down. I mean, by this stage, it had kind of made this bid for control of Italy and lost, um, and had had to retreat back to its African heartland. Um, so I think I think it's it's more that you know by this stage Car- Carthage is is sort of really drained of resources, whereas Rome has managed, managed as, uh, although it, it's obviously suffered you know significantly you know in, ter- in terms of drain on its financial and manpower resources you know was starting to build those back up again because it it, it had you know other sources within Italy. Um, but I think the, the key to this is that effectively Scipio seems to have, built, uh, have played Hannibal at his own game, because whereas Hannibal saw and picking the, the Roman alliance in Italy as being a key to, to um, undermining Roman control of the peninsula, uh, what, what Scipio seems to have done uh, was to uh, go to North Africa and start doing the same to Carthage. Uh, because the Numidians, who had been long-time allies of Carthage, uh, you know, he man- managed to 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 get peel them away from from alliance, um, and therefore successfully allies, uh, uh, isolated Carthage from Numidia, um, which of course, given that some of Carthage's most feared troops were its Numidian cavalrymen, <laughs> that uh, you know you've got you've got you've got a problem there. Um, and also, you know, there are big issues to do with Carthage's control of Libya, which is much more of a sort of situation of, um, you know, domination rather than alliance. Uh, and periodically, as we, we discussed in an earlier episode, the Libyans started to rebel against this. So, you know, Carthage's control of the Libyans isn't absolutely cast iron. Um, so I think, I think the, the main issue here is that, um, you know, Car- Carthage, uh, that Scipio is not, it's not so much the military issue, it's the fact that, that Scipio has, has actually built up this network of alliances in North Africa, uh, which means that he's stripping Carthage of a lot of the support that it, it would really need to, to fight a, a big pitched battle successfully. And Hannibal survived that final battle, so his life continued after that battle, right? Oh, Hannibal had a very interesting post post war career. I mean, every, everyone kind of assumes that maybe that Hannibal's career ended ended with Zama, but it didn't. Uh, he actually goes off to he's a very accomplished statesman as well as a battlefield commander. Uh, so he's a very influential political career at Carthage uh, in, into the around about one ninety five, uh, and then after he gets exiled in one ninety five, uh, he. Uh, goes to Syria, uh, where Rome, by that stage, was fighting a, a war against uh, Antiochus, the king of Syria, uh, and becomes a major, uh, one, of, one, of, one of Antiochus's major advisors and battlefield commanders. Um, and really, he he's, um, has this really quite 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 influential and and interesting post-war career. Um, and it's not until um, Rome defeats Antiochus in, in 189, that really he, he's um, very much on the back foot. He then flees to uh, Bithynia, the, king, the kingdom on the, on the, uh, the Black Sea, um, and dies there in either 183 or 181, depending on who you, who's dating, you believe. Um, uh, and what he dies of, again, is, is equally murky. Um, the Second century AD Greek writer Pausanias says it was natural causes that he, he cut himself from wound turned septic. Um, 
but other sources say that maybe he was poisoned by the king of Bithynia, who was trying to carry, carry favour with the Romans, uh, or whether he committed suicide to avoid being handed over. Uh, but either way, he seems to have died of some sort of uh, sepsis or, or poisoning in the, the late 180s. Um, but certainly, he, has a, he does have a very interesting post-war career. It's, you know, summer is known by no means the end of him. Well, we talked about doing a similar exercise uh, episode-wise to what we did after the first Punic War and covering um, Carthage after this war and Rome after uh, this, this, this war. So we can probably, um, I, I presume, some of those details will come up again in that, uh, that future episode. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and it's 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 it's, it's an interesting story, and um, of course, it isn't by this isn't by any means the the final Punic War. There is a third one, which is when Carthage finally does get become destroyed by Rome in one forty six. So there's still a you know some way to go in this this long long, long drawn out saga of Rome versus Carthage. Thanks for coming on the show again, Catherine. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, and I look forward to uh, the next conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, thank you. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Lomas wrote, she's author of The Rise of Rome, From the Iron Age to the Punic Wars, 1000 BC to 264 BC, and she's author of Rome and the Western Greeks, 350 BC to AD 200, Conquest and Acculturation in Southern Italy. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Catherine and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.